This is the policy podcast from the Menzies Research Centre. I'm thoroughly opposed to early specialization. Man's not civilized because he's clever. He's not civilized because he's a good chemist. He's not civilized because he's a good lawyer, though that's a marvelous thing to be. <laughs> but he is civilized if he has got to understand that he's living in a world of men and that he must understand men and be tolerant of men and stand for things which go beyond the bank account. This is civilization, and it's something that we want. And that was the voice of Robert Menzies speaking in 1968 at a speech he gave to the King's School in Canterbury in the UK. The ideas that he talks about there abroad, a classic education, brought to, to mind the work that the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilization is doing with its university courses in the classics. So I'm delighted today to welcome to the Policy Podcast, Simon Haynes, the Director of the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilization. Welcome, Simon. Oh, hello, Nick. Thank you for inviting me. Those, those, uh, those thoughts of Sir Robert must have been very dear to your heart. <laughs> well, there's a lot of things about them. I was just scribbling away as, he, as I was listening to him. A lot of things that strike me. One just off the cuff is I gather he was speaking in Canterbury. Uh, and um, Canterbury Cathedral was, uh, was begun just after William the Conqueror landed in 1066 or something like that, 1068. And it was only about 20 years later, so 1088, that the very first European university was founded. Um, the University of Bologna was founded in 1088. Uh, and then very shortly afterwards, the next two were Paris and Oxford. And a very interesting thing about that, which goes to what his nibs was saying in that, in that rather, good, uh, rather good talk, is that Bologna was distinguished by the fact that it was created for the sons, particularly the sons, not the daughters in those days, of, course, uh, yeah. of, of wealthy professionals. So it trained essentially doctors and lawyers. But Oxford and Paris were very different, uh, and they were funded by, essentially by the taxpayer by the person who paid tithes to the church or the crown or whatever it was. And they had an attitude towards their education, which was much more what we'd call liberal artsy kind of generalist. So you've got those from the very beginning of the Western University, you've got these two quite distinct strands. One which is, and I'm not using this word disparagingly, it's, a, it's a, literally a technical term. Techne in Greek means kind of um, skill. It's a skill. And that's what Bologna was doing. But what was being taught in Oxford and Paris and in Bologna in the first year, but not so much later on, was something more like kind of wisdom uh, or what the Greeks would have called phrenesis, practical wisdom. So nothing disreputable about any of this. You need both. But you got the two strands in university education right from the start. So that's a thousand years ago. And what's interesting if you look at the evolution of the Western University ever since, has been that kind of shifting um, conflict, sort of, or balance or tension between those two strands, which then had a third, 
a third strand added to it much later on in the process, which was in Germany in the 19th century when the research university was first thought of and created. So by the time all of this complex practical wisdom, technical skill and pure research all blended together, you have in Australia, starting with um, William, Charles, William Charles Wentworth's foundation of the University of Sydney in, I think I'm scribbling at my old pieces of paper here, 1850, Nick, I think, you've got a sort of odd, odd blend of all three, but particularly that in Australia with every one of the state capitals needing its own centre of learning, you tended to have a very homogeneous model that they were all pretty much the same as each other. They were all metropolitan, basically secular, basically liberal, and basically providing a skill, a set of trainings, training skills, as well as the broad education. You didn't get the idea of the focused research university until the ANU was created with that goal in the late 1940s, so nearly 100 years later. But it seems like ever since then, the research function and the skill technical function have become stronger and stronger. And the third one, which is kind of the wisdom function, has tended to get crowded out by the other two. And I think that, that particularly, that, that, that massively, um, that became much more the case after the John Dawkins reforms of the universities in the 1980s. Uh, which basically collapsed all the Australian universities into what's been called a single giant monoversity. And the comment made by the OECD analyst who was looking at the Dawkins reforms in the mid-90s, he was amazed by what he called the, the, the uniformity of mission amongst all Australian universities, where he said all of them wanted to enter the research arena but all the avowed emphasis on teaching and diversity disappeared. And then as we all know, a process began in the, in the Dawkins years, which has never stopped, which has galloped on. In 1970, 5% of the age cohort, 18 to 20 year olds went to university. It's now nearly, 50, nearly 10 times as many. Give, give me those um, statistics again. Let's not rush past these. So 1970. Uh, good statistics, good numbers. Yeah. In 1970, between five and 7% of 20 year olds went to university. The figure is now between 40 and 50% and still rising. Now, of course, I'm saying this as it were pre-coronavirus and pre the impact of um, international student numbers on university business models, which is a whole other story, which is not exactly what you or Menzies are asking me about, but they became degree factories. I might stop you there. So you've you've given us enough there to start conversation <laughs> about ten podcasts, right? Sorry, but sorry. well, we'll come back to some of that in a moment. Yeah. I suspect uh, I know what Robert Menzies would have thought of the way universities yeah. are going. Yeah. Uh, let's let's have a listen to a bit more of that speech, which I played a short grab from earlier in the program. Sure, sure, yeah. yeah. I confess I'm thoroughly opposed to early specialisation. I think that to have a boy, for example, and I'm talking about them today, having, strangely enough, been one myself, I think that if a boy has it put into his head, foolishly perhaps by a parent, when he's about 14, well now look, forget about 
Latin, forget about these other things you're looking at. Uh, you're going to be so-and-so, so concentrate purely on the topics, if you can, that will help you to do so-and-so and to make a living. I think this is a disaster for the world. Because after all, headmaster, I'll undertake to say that when you sit down at the end of your academic year and contemplate the past 12 months, your greatest pride would be to feel that you had helped to create a substantial group of civilized citizens, civilized people. Man's not civilized because he's clever. He's not civilized because he's a good chemist. He's not civilized because he's a good lawyer, though that's a marvelous thing to be. <laughs> but he is civilized if he has got to understand that he's living in a world of men and that he must understand men and be tolerant of men and stand for things which go beyond the bank account. This is civilization, and it's something that we want. Robert Menzies uh, was very much the father of higher education in its modern form in Australia, at least in terms of its expansion. Uh, in yes. 1957, he, he commissioned the Murray Report to look at university. And interestingly, on those statistics, if my memory serves me correct, at that stage, 4% of... Right, of, of, that would be right. Of, yeah, four percent of of people leaving school at eighteen would go to university. Yeah, the Murray report looked at it, commissioned by 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 Robert Menzies, and came up with a figure of seventeen percent. They said they thought the best available information mm. around the world was that seventeen percent of young people had the right uh, right kind of intellect to mm. benefit from a university education. Because we've gone way beyond that now. Um, but Renzi's was very clear. He was very for, I think, the kind of education that the Ramsey Centre is trying to promote, and that is a rounded classical education. Uh, and I remember, I don't know, Simon, whether you followed this part of the story, but one of the universities that was set up by Robert Menzies, one of the many, was Monash. And mm. there was a strong feeling, particularly in the state government, this should be a scientific engineering sort of mm. technical university in the German model. Uh, the mm. German style, but Menzies was quite clear, you know, that that was great. We should have science. We should have what mm. we now call uh, STEM. Yep. But alongside that should be a rounded classical education. And, and I must say, I think I'm on Menzies' side on this one. What about you? Uh, well, as you can imagine, from the kind of uh, degree that we're promoting, yes. Uh, this isn't to say that, you know, it would be crazy to say that you don't need the techne. You don't need those skills. Uh, um, you couldn't possibly have a functioning technocratic society without them, but it's keeping the balance between the phrenesis and the, the pure knowledge side, the practical knowledge side and the technical side. That is the difficult thing to do. And that's where I, I think and Ramsey thinks that we've lost the way a little bit uh, and uh, making it possible for students to take broadly based um, what we call great books courses, that is uh, a, a course which exposes students to a series of texts, works of art, uh, music, in the, long, in the long tradition of the West, is something that's really important not to lose sight of and not to let go of. It's not, um, it's not something that um, fits awfully well with the model of a degree, either in this country or in Britain, which is where Menzies was speaking. Because as you know, let's 
we're just talking about arts faculties really here. Uh, the model in the UK and to a somewhat lesser extent here is that you take a specialist discipline. It might be sociology or political science or you know classics or whatever. Uh, whereas what we're talking about is something that's much more cross-disciplinary, multidisciplinary, a range of texts and a number of disciplines. This is something that, um, that the tertiary sector is much more comfortable with in the US than it is in the UK or here. So what we're trying to do is to introduce something that's essentially an American great booksy style model into an Anglo-Australian degree framework. And I think the sheer unfamiliarity of that endeavor has caused a certain amount of hostility and, and uh, resistance because it's not something that blends easily into our discipline-based, research-based framework. Yeah, confusion, I think. I mean, for a lot of us watching the sometimes quite strange direction this took over the last few years when you were negotiating with universities, I, I just, you know, it seemed incredible that people could see what you were doing as some kind, somehow hostile to the university model. It, I, I know, I know. Very I mean, much we, a compliment. We just, we just, um, we tore our hair sometimes and we, we now have our three partners, we're delighted to say, and we're thrilled to bits with all three of them. Um, Tell uh, me, um, it, you, you've now got students, of course, studying. Yes. yes. What's the reaction? Do you, do you get people who say potential students say, well, that, that's all very well, but I, you know, I'm really going to have my work cut out just doing you know, uh, accountancy or whatever they happen to be doing? Well, not at all. Um, the level of enthusiasm and excitement for this degree amongst the students that have now started is just unbelievable, Nick. Uh, we went to the opening of the degree uh, at Wollongong University a, a few months ago a couple of months ago and the students were there the incoming cohort of scholars were there with their parents and they were just it was just such a heartwarming exciting experience they were just so thrilled it and doing this degree by the way um does not mean that they can't do say law or whatever it may be which Sir Robert was clearly um, had a soft spot for the way he was. We, we should call him Bob, by the way. I, I was calling him Sir, Sir Robert out of great respect for quite a while until his daughter, Heather Henderson, said, just call him Bob. We all do. Yes, <laughs> but anyway, I, over I, to you. I've known Heather a long time and she said the same thing to me a long time ago. <laughs> um, so, um, so the point is that they can do uh, this great books degree alongside a law degree. It doesn't occupy their whole university time. So it's tailored to fit in with the model that we do have that the Americans don't, which is a combined degree like arts law or arts science or something like that. So they could even do, you know, Asian studies or indigenous studies or something alongside this Western Civ degree. And then they get, as it were, the best of both worlds, including the techne and the phrenesis, both at the same time. So, so and look, so to answer your question, um, far from being worried that they wouldn't fit it all in. They just couldn't wait. They were just so thrilled. The, the expressions on their faces, the tone of voice, you know, the parents were thrilled. Um, the parents that Menzies was lamenting, saying, oh, I know you're all on their shoulders when they're 14, telling them they got to do economics or something. Um, on the contrary, the parents were all hugely supportive. And there was a range of kids from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different some of them were rural New South Wales. Some There was one from Queensland. This was at Wollongong. There were some from metropolitan Sydney, some from Canberra, some from the Wollongong area. So a wide range. Very heartwarming. Let's unpack a bit what, what an education like this 
uh, can give somebody. And it seems to me that, that we are very much in a sort of utilitarian frame of mind when it comes mm. to university education. Uh, you know, people see it as an economic transaction. Uh, it's like, I, it's almost like buying a package of software and download on a computer. I, I will go, I will get this uh, learning and I will then turn that to commercial value in a career. Whereas when Menzies talks about higher education, um, and indeed many of the people he quotes, uh, they are going back much more to the idea that, that it's an education almost for an education's sake. It's an education to make you a better person, not, a, not necessarily a, you know, a, to train you. It just it makes you a more rounded person. And I think that comes through in what Menzies was saying in that speech. I might just play another bit of that, by the way, Simon. Sure, go ahead. We happen to be living, it's an old cliche, in a highly material age. The economist has taken charge of us. Now, I, I have no inherent objection to, e to economists. I've had to cope with a great number of them in my own public life. And I think, com uh, uh, I think that uh, economists are very good in their place. <laughs> but to have a notion predominating in the world that the only problems, for example, in England, are economic problems or financial problems. This is a terrible blunder. Economic problems have a habit of settling themselves by means usually unknown to the economists when they pointed them out. Financial problems have a habit of sorting themselves out. I've, uh, I've seen a great number in my own country, and I've seen them come and go. They have to be dealt with, of course. But everything, everything is not to be expressed in terms of material things, of profit and loss accounts, of the resources of a country, of its balance of payments or its balance of trade. Because the truth is that the greatest problems in our society today are problems which are essentially moral or spiritual. Now, I don't want to sound ponderous or pompous about this because I have no desire to. But I do become rather weary of hearing all these things expressed in terms of pounds, shillings and pence. Whereas the truth is that this country of England, about whose troubles I read day after day in the press, all the material troubles I read about day after day in the press, this country has a reserve of moral fibre and of moral courage not surpassed anywhere in the world or at any time in history. This has been proved in our own lifetimes. But I think that your people need to be reminded of it, need to be reminded that down inside of them they have something that will not only clear up the problems but will demonstrate a sense of nationhood and of community, which is the most important thing they have before them. Now, that's not a side of Menzies that, that we tend to hear a lot about. You know, people are always looking at this more 
directly political comments, but that was very much the man, wasn't it? He, he felt that a university education helped you understand, dare I say, the spiritual dimension of life as well as everything else. That's yeah, it, missing, isn't it? Very much missing these days from a university struck me, It struck me listening to him, um, Nick, that he was pretty clearly referencing a kind of post-war, the war spirit. Uh, he talks about fibre. Uh, he's very complimentary about the British character. Um, actually, it made me think of her Madge just a week or so ago, whenever it was, that rather nice speech that she made. I don't know whether you saw it about... You I know, did, we'll, yeah. We'll get through this as we've got through so many other things in the past. Uh, and we will meet again. She even, she even quoted Vera Lynn and that sort of that World War II spirit. And I think Menzies' use of the word fibre um, made me think of that. Um, qualities of character. Um, I think he used the word spiritual. Um, I don't know whether you know this, but there's this idea of moral fibre uh, that was yeah. quite, quite common in between the wars and particularly during the war. And I, um, I remember looking this up once, where did the phrase moral fibre come from? And um, it was used by Terence Rattigan, the playwright, in, in a play that he wrote about um, a fighter pilot in World War II. Uh, and, the, and what people used to do in the RAF when they were um, writing your assessment report, sometimes the little ac um, uh, acronym LMF used to appear, and that meant low moral fibre. And if yeah. you had LMF on your assessment report, you were basically taken off the flight so you didn't do them again. Did so, you get a do doctor certificate, perhaps? I've got, yeah, I've well, got that LNF. <laughs> but I was thinking, listening to him, so what, so if we're thinking about um, national character and this moving aside from whether university degrees can actually teach you to be a person of greater virtue or stronger character and i'm not at all sure that they can nick or that they should even try uh it's much more in the lines of exposing you to what uh lives of character and lives of thought have been like and maybe it might rub off or it might give you some idea of how that might look rather than you know, you go in with this kind of grim determination to become a moral person at the end of your degree, which kind of isn't right, not quite the thing, I don't think. But I was thinking about um, fibre and what the virtue was that he's, that he's kind of evoking here. Um, uh, and I think what it is, if you go back to the source of an awful lot of this talk about character, about practical wisdom, about the virtues, it's nearly always Aristotle. Um, the, the, Aristotel the Aristotelian virtues, you, you can count them in different ways, but there's about a dozen. Uh, and nearly always for him, and also for Socrates in the generation before Aristotle, the key, one of the key virtues is courage. Courage. Uh, and when Cicero in, inherits this kind of Aristotelian taxonomy of the virtues in, in, the, in the first century or around the turn of the millennium, it's fortitudo in Cicero, in Cicero, it's called Andrea in Aristotle, which of course, Andrea means what becomes a man, because that's the word for a man. And our word virtue is also from the word via, V-I-R, which means a man. So it's manliness, it's manliness. But of course, nowadays we wouldn't- You couldn't get away. We Don't even try it, Simon. You won't get away with that today. No, I'm sorry. You wouldn't even dream of saying only men can be courageous. You but know, look at, 
it does bring us on, I think, to this kind of idea, what is virtue? Because and what is what is being a moral person? I mean, today, we live in this world of what we talk about virtue signaling. And we usually when we say that we're referring to sort of people on the progressive side of politics and uh, who yeah. adopt these virtues, you know, they're, they're um, in what they say, you know, they're very, um, you know, they're very, uh, they're very green, they're very sustainable, they're very tolerant, or tolerance not the right world, but they, they believe that everybody should have the right to do everything or be anything. Mm. Uh, and look, we know the problems with that. We don't want to go into that today, except to say that uh, to stand up against that, that zeitgeist, against that culture, you know, to say, well, look, I'm sorry, I'm not quite sure I agree with that, or I have a different idea of marriage to what you do, or mm. um, I, I, I don't happen to think that, the top priority right now is is uh, saving you know carbon there are other things like you know um uh you know poverty and people without electricity to say those sort of things that seems to me what takes the real courage today so mm. in a way going against you know this sort of virtue signaling uh, mm. to, uh is that part of being courageous of being dare i say it manly um in the sense you know is it you got the courage, your convictions, got the courage to stand up for what you believe in and not just go along with the crowd? Um, so before we go on to that, I just want to take, pick up on what Menzies was saying about economists. Well, you know, please they're, do, yeah. They're all very, that they're all very well in their place um, in public life. And as you know, I live with two economists, um, married to one of them and a son is the other one. And I think... Um, if I were to endorse in any way <laughs> what Menzies said about economists, I'd be in very deep trouble. Um, um, Andrea or no Andrea, it would take more Andrea than I've got to stand up to that one. But look, look about virtue signaling, I think one interesting thing about um, virtues is that even when we think they've kind of become modern and that modern virtues are sort of different from the classical ones, they tend to kind of always reduce back to the same group. And I'm thinking of Menzies' own use in that piece that you've just, uh, you've just played of, of the word tolerance. And uh, you've used it as well. Um, I, I used it uneasily, you, Simon. I'm not quite sure you, about the word. You explain it to me. I'm not sure tolerance. about it. Oh, okay. No, I mean, fair enough. My, my way of thinking about tolerance is that like all the Aristotelian virtues, it is a mean between two extremes. And that's the critical thing about a virtue in Aristotle. There's always an excess in either direction. So courage, which is what we were talking about at the beginning, is the mean between, on the one hand, cowardice, you know, excessive fear, and on the other hand, rashness, which is, you know, excessive bravado. So courage is not kind of a maximum of something. It's a mean between two things that are both bad, right? And I think tolerance is probably much the same. Uh, it's, I, I, I'm not quite sure how I think of the two extremes, but I would say that tolerance is kind of in a mean between, um, uh, on the one hand, excessive, um, excessive indulgence of no matter what. In other words, you'll tolerate anything. Somebody comes to your house, breaks in and steals something and you go, okay, well, look, I'll tolerate that. But that's, that's excessive. And the other extreme, of course, would be bigotry or rigidity or complete intolerance of any view that is not the same as yours. 
So the tricky thing always in the Aristotelian virtue scheme, which I think still works, is to think of tolerance as a mean. So there are things that you do tolerate because in the interests of an open society where open conversation and open discourse is important, the last thing you want is no platforming, for example, which is the kind of intolerance. But on the other hand, also the last thing you want is anything goes. No matter what uh, attitudes or subset of cultural practices somebody brings into your country, for example, you will always tolerate them. Or no matter how somebody behaves at your dinner table, well, you know, you tolerate everything. That would be an excess of indulgence. So I understand what you mean about being a bit leery about tolerance, but if you think well, many, about- Many of the people who claim to be tolerant- Are not. Are actually, actually the most intolerant people you ever come across, that, right? That is very often true. Um, yes, I agree. Um, and I think if you look back at the Aristotelian list of, uh, of virtues, the closest one he has to, he didn't have a word for tolerance, but he did have something more like patience and good temper. And this, he, he discussed this in the context of anger, that is extreme irritability with how people behave. So the excess in one direction would be being angry with somebody. The excess in the other direction would be a complete lack of spirit, inability to push back angrily against somebody who's behaving really badly. But in between would be something like the virtue of good temperedness, patience, which then of course became a Christian virtue as well, as often happened with the classical virtues, it gets channeled via Cicero and Stoicism into Augustinian models of Christian, the Christian virtues, and therefore it becomes patience. And that can become an excess of putting up with too, a kind of self-sacrificing that loses track of where the limits are and things that you just should not put up with. Anyway. You mentioned the word Stoicism there. Fred Paul uh, wrote a very um, thought-provoking piece, I thought, on Stoicism on the water cooler recently, uh, right. calling for more Stoicism really uh, in the community in the face of you know, the, the very many challenges and external threats we've had this year. Mm. Uh, stoicism I always associate with World War II, of course, uh, you know, my parents' generation, those who lived through World War II seem to be very stoic people, you know, mm. very prepared just to, um, you yeah. know, just a, just a, what's that, what's that thing everybody has on their mugs, you know, keep calm and carry on. Stiff up, stiff up a lip and all that. Yeah. yeah. How do you see the word stoicism? And is it, is it a sort of concept, a, a sort of, it's a piece of character that we need to emphasize today in this in the times we're going through well i mean i tend to see stoicism as you'd expect from what i've already been saying in a kind of long historical context uh, and stoicism originally arose about 300 bc as an outgrowth of um socratic and aristotelian ethics um and the key thing about classical Stoicism is that it was basically an intellectual virtue. That is, it depended on understanding that, that the underlying structure of the universe is rational. And if you can get in tune with the underlying structure of the universe as a rational thing and as a rational being, so that you're in tune with the way that it all works as a kind of cosmic order, that means that upsetting emotions won't bother you anymore because you'll kind of be above all of that. And that idea that there's a sort of world spirit that you can understand rationally and 
align your life to is the core of Stoicism. And that many, many centuries later ends up with the attitude that you kind of don't care what bad things happen to you, so you're a Stoic person. And Stoicism was mediated also through Cicero and through Christianity. And it actually ends up in some ways in the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, who is quite Stoic in his view that, you know, there's this famous line from Kant, who is a duty, a duty ethics person. And he says that there's only two things that fill him with awe. One is the starry heavens above, and the other is the moral law within. So he kind of equates the starry heavens and the moral, and so that becomes a kind of duty, a duty-based thing. So it's a complicated story. I'm not quite sure if it's exactly what you asked, but you asked how I think about stoicism, so that's how. Well, you like everything. You've just thrown up another five possible podcasts. But yeah, <laughs> look, I will come back to uh, the, the, the economists who uh, oh, yeah. Menzies, uh, <laughs> Menzies beautifully put in their place. Look, I, I, if I could just bear with me, let me, let me explain where I'm going here. And this is yeah. probably the thought that got me into this, ringing you and getting you to do this in the first place. Yeah. So it, it seems to me that um, Menzies, it's quite clear, right? The economy is not everything. Yeah, yeah. There are other things that are as or more important. There are other things. And yeah. Menzies uh, once in reply to the question, you know, what sort of country do you want to leave behind when you're no longer prime minister? He said, I want it to be a more prosperous and just country. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, and <clears throat> it, it seems to seem to be for quite a while now that what we've done on the centre-right of politics since really the Thatcher Reagan era is to sort of uh, turn uh, the economy into a fetish. You know, we, we, we've come to think that everything is about just balancing the books and making sure the economy's going okay. Mm. Sure, is, is, is vital and, and, and the centre-right tends to do it better than the, the left. But, but there's another side too. We want to be a more just com- country and that throws up all sorts of ideas of more, mm. a more spiritual um, approach, more thinking about people's welfare. Uh, and and it's, you know, one of the reasons, Theresa May said this once. Do you remember when she said at a Tory party conference, we're in danger of being seen as the nasty party? Nasty party. Yeah. I think that's exactly what she was getting at. You know, we're not the nasty party or the liberal or the centre-right are not nasty people. They're generally quite kind and caring people. But because we keep going on about the economy, it, it's maybe given that impression we're a little bit hard about everything else. Do you, do you, but today, if you just bear with me one more sentence, this has come to a crunch point, it seems to me, with coronavirus, mm. right? Mm. Because it, we, we've got two things seemingly in conflict, you know, the, the, the risks to the economy and the risks to public health. And mm. our opponents want us to say, oh, we've got to put the economy first. But of course, I haven't heard anybody on the centre-right of politics say exactly that. I mean, people are saying, sure, you've got to balance up your measures uh, with a view to what's happened with the economy. But maybe this is the moment at which we finally realise that, that, that actually, you know, the economy was a priority in the 70s and 80s when we were fixing up a lot of the mistakes or the, or the things we'd let go. But there is another side to being um, a liberal. Mm or a conservative mm. that we've got to take notice. Well, you're, you're, that's my thesis. Mark, mark me on my thesis. <laughs> okay, Nick. <laughs> 100%, 100%, of course. Um, well, look, you've raised about six podcasts worth there yourself. I don't, don't even know where I'd begin. Um, so, well, one thing that does come to mind is that I believe 150 economists have just signed a letter saying 
uh, we must continue with the lockdown. Um, but I think that was, I, I didn't see the letter, but I gather that happened a couple of days ago. At the same time in Germany, uh, I got the impression from the press yesterday that a very large number of economists are against continuing the lockdown. So maybe that's just a way of saying that you ask any two economists about something and you'll get two completely different answers. Um, the, second, the second thing I'd say is um, uh, I'm thinking of Edmund Burke and I'm almost sure that Menzies is channeling Burke at some point in his speech when he's thinking about economists because do you remember that wonderful sentence from, I think it's from the Reflections on the Revolution when he's talking about the, um, the death of Marie Antoinette yeah. And he, he says, you know, at the sight of this woman being executed, a thousand swords should have leapt from their scabbards in her defense or whatever. And he goes on to say, but no, the age of chivalry is dead. And that of economists, sophists and calculators has succeeded. And the glory of Europe is extinguished forever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I listened to that recently as an audio book. And I'm, that, that was the bit, because that's the quote everybody knows, but... The yeah, full quote is even better than the partial one. Well, and uh, he, 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 I, that's what Burke's getting at. And I think it's, you know, Menzies was what we call a Burkean conservative, as John mm -hmm. Howard and others like mm -hmm. to identify themselves. Uh, sometimes I just think we should say liberal, uh, as Menzies mm -hmm. did. But anyway, let's get leave well, that. Well, Burke was a Whig. Burke, was, Burke wasn't a Tory, you know. Yeah. Um, but, but another point, I mean, just to sort of take the answer another step, um, Nick, um, talking about justice and, and what you need in a, in a flourishing society, because um, I think Menzies used the word flourishing. Um, and again, this takes me right back to Aristotle, because the core of his account of both ethics and politics is flourishing. Uh, the Greek word is eudaimonia, which means something like there is a good, there's a good spirit. Uh, in, in you or in the country. And no matter whether it's an individual that you're talking about or a society, Aristotle quite explicitly says the measure of flourish, flourishing is not wealth. It's not riches. It's all these other things. And then we go on and talk about the virtues and courage and temperance and magnanimity and truthfulness and blah, blah, blah. So that, that kind of um, standoff between material prosperity and true flourishing is not really a left-wing, right-wing thing at all. I mean, this it shouldn't be, should it? It predates no. by thousands of years, um, wherever the idea of left and right came from, French Revolution or whatever. So it shouldn't be, and it absolutely wasn't in classical thought. Well, this is the other thing, of course, I suppose it comes from that um, Wall Street kind of, what was that movie on Wall Street? Greed is oh, Good. Greed is Good, yeah. Um, which was sort of, a, a sort of very crude way of interpreting what, what, what we've been saying about the need for prosperity. But I love that word flourishing. And Menzies uses the word thrive. He says the mm -hmm. most important thing a government should do is to create an atmosphere in which business can thrive. Mm -hmm. And it, it's true, isn't it, Simon? I mean, that, um, you know, it's an old cliche, money doesn't buy you happiness and mm -hmm. money can't buy you love. But it's true, isn't it? It's not actually the quantum of how much you've got. It's how fulfilled you are in life. And, and uh, we all know that instinctively. So it'd be nice to be able to build some of that into public policy. Wouldn't it? Well, um, and particularly, as I was saying a minute ago, uh, Nick, because it is, not, it is not a party political idea. The notion of flourishing, uh, a flourishing life, uh, is, is not, it doesn't belong to the right or the left. 
of course it's a good thing to build it into to public life. Um, I mean, in, in Aristotle's case, in classical philosophy, um, Menzies mentioned the word just as well, a just society. Yeah. Justice is in classical, um, the classical virtue scheme, it is the, the virtue that enables you to get the right balance between all the other virtues. So the, the four key virtues are the cardinal virtues, as they're called, are prudence, justice, courage, and temperance. Temperance means something like moderation or self-restraint. Prudence is a horrible word nowadays. We kind of think of, think of it as a kind of rather purse-lipped sort of, you know, auntie something is terribly prudent with her money or something. But it, it isn't that. It means um, practical wisdom, having the, 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 the capacity to know which is the right sensible course of action. So prudence, justice, courage, and moderation are the four key, key virtues. Courage is often the one that's the most important or thought of in that way, because without it, you don't practice the others when you need to. But justice is the key um, from, from Socrates onwards, because it tells you how to get the right balance between all the others. And this is where your the thought about tolerance comes in. Um, justice, a just society, does not, does not sanction uh, tolerance to the point where it allows destructive things to be said or things to happen. Uh, a, a just society knows when courage is truly courageous and when it's, uh, and when it's not just rashness or foolhardiness. This so is where we, yeah, this is where we get into trouble, it seems to me, in the modern world, because, you know, we all accept, you know, that you, don't, you have freedom of speech, but not the freedom to shout, shout fire in the crowd. If yeah, yeah, and all yeah. that. Sure. Um, but that, it's a judgment call, isn't it? And, and it, my problem with, 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 with putting these limits on is who, who polices those limits? Um, mm. yeah, I mean, naturally what should occur is that, you know, collectively as a society and as a bottom-up um, sort of strong community, we, we just let it be known what the norms are. But uh, in today's world, unfortunately, there's some people who think they know better than us and want to impose it down, don't they? So mm. that's your issue, isn't it? How, how do you, who, who's the judge of what, where these limits are? Well, I suppose um, what you have to be careful of here is something that Aristotle was critical of in his great predecessor, which was Plato. Uh, and you'd know in the, in the Republic, um, the class of people who know best are called the guardians. Uh, and society is divided into essentially three classes, the guardians, the military, uh, and the merchant class. Uh, and um, the guardian's job is because they are great philosophers and they know what's best for us all, they decide what's good. Uh, and the military carries out the policy and the merchants just carry on with the business of making money. And Aristotle was worried by that idea that there's a class of people who know best, uh, which in some ways is why he's more attractive to me and to many people than Plato was. Mm, absolutely. And um, uh, one, you know, the Guardian, one thinks of the newspaper of the same name. They very <laughs> much take that view, don't they? But uh... The thought had not crossed my mind. <laughs> look, just to round off, look, and I'd love to come back, get you back in. Perhaps out when, when the social distancing comes to an end, we can sit in the same room and talk about these things. Mm -hmm. But just to come back to where you started higher education, uh, uh, higher education is in some trouble now, it seems to me. It's, its business model is, is not going to cope well 
mm. current conditions. I mean, mm. group of eight universities, as you know, universities like Sydney in particular, but Melbourne uh, too, and the other group of eight universities have been great honeypots, great magnets for Chinese students in particular. Mm. I think one in or three in every 10 students that were supposed to be enrolled at Sydney University this year came from mainland China. Is that right? Wow. That's right. So uh, that model is obviously under threat. Mm. Uh, who knows what happens to the domestic market? Uh, and, and maybe you're right that some people will choose to study more now. They're finding it harder to get jobs. But I basically think, like I suspect you do, that this, this uh, education on demand, anybody can go to university, the more the better, is is a is a is a broken model it should never have been introduced because you know you get to the point where you get credentialism people training mm -hmm. just for the sake of getting ahead of the next person doing two degrees because the other person in the job queue might only have one uh, you get i think a, and i hear this time and time again from young people at university they they, they find it a very unsatisfying experience because universities now, Menzies once said of the universities, you can build the bricks and mortar, sure, but can you can you quickly establish the staff of the caliber you need to teach mm. a growing number of students? That was one of his big regrets following the Murray report in, in retrospect. So that, there is be almost a sort of dumbed down experience that people claim complain of the university. Is this the time, do you think, Simon, as somebody involved in this sector, when we can start having a serious conversation about some reform in higher education? Uh, and returning it to some degree of proportion, uh, while not obviously killing off the opportunity for people to go to university who have the have the skills to do so. What worries me is that, I mean, we're talking. What I'm talking about basically is the humanities in universities, um, which is kind of part of the broad arts concept, and the humanities have been struggling financially for a long time. They have tended to be the kind of poor cousins in the university funding model for really decades. And uh, they often survive on the basis of cross subsidies from more affluent faculties. And that's become, I, I suspect, although I'm not inside an Australian university anymore, so I'm very much, you know, kind of an outsider here. This might be quite wrong. But I suspect that the subsidising from particularly things like faculties of business and commerce, which most Asian students want, particularly want to do. So you've got huge income revenue into business and commerce faculties, which then prop up the arts and humanities faculty. And now that revenue has gone, not only will the business faculty become basically only just breaking even, but there won't be the surplus to support other areas of the university uh, in. Uh, science is in a different category. I don't know how that works. I suspect there's some kind of influx of funding from, from industry, um, as is true in engineering. But arts and humanities, I, I foresee, and I hope I'm wrong, bad, bad times ahead. Uh, for example, the casualized postdoc kind of generation, early career um, um, academics, were finding it hard enough to, to, um, to find their careers in the humanities already. But with the kind of shrinking that's gonna go on, it's gonna get much worse for them. And that is where Ramsey is really able to offer something because we're offering 10 staff into arts faculties to teach this stuff. 
and hopefully that will be the saving of some arts faculties but Nick not many we don't have enough money to support all of them so VCs are going to have to take very tough decisions how you shrink the whole envelope while keeping the, the, the invaluable things that arts faculties do alive. And that's going to be a very, there's going to be a lot of blood on the floor, how they sort that one out. I mean, which functions of the arts faculty are retained, which go, uh, whether you're able in that sort of context to do the kind of thing that we're advocating, I, I don't know. I'd be, I'd be quite worried about that. So, you know, uh, my heart goes out to people in, in arts and humanities faculties in, 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 in what's coming. I hope I'm wrong, but I think you could be right. Some hard thinking about pulling your horns in and what priority setting you need to do uh, as a result of that is going to have to happen. I just don't feel very hopeful that it's going to be good for arts faculties. It just adds to our sense of gratitude, I think, for what Paul Ramsey Absolutely. did in setting up this foundation um, and, and, and funding it so generously. So thank goodness you're there, Simon. And there is an alternative if people are finding their courses uh, um, and not quite where they wanted to be, they should perhaps check out what you're offering. Absolutely. Thanks for doing that. No problem. Um, and thanks for joining us on, on the Policy Podcast, with, uh, possibly one of the more philosophical ones we've had, but I think very satisfying, Dean, and much to return to, I think, as we, we continue to navigate these, uh, these difficult times, COVID times. But thanks for coming on, Simon. Look forward to seeing you in person next time, Nick. <laughs> Thank you. If you'd like to hear more free content like this, then please consider helping us by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre at www.menziesrc.org.